This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I am always grateful to have this place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill, in good faith, some of whom have become pretty good friends. So that is definitely the case today. And it is an honor to be a part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. That's what we're all about. Please remember to subscribe. I know a lot of folks have subscribed on Apple or Spotify or Podcast Addict or Player FM is another big one I see hopping up the charts. You know, it really does help us. It really helps us show up in the rankings around the country and around the world. And it allows us to be discovered by other folks that are looking for these types of conversations. You know, it's super easy to find the screamers, the extremists, the, you know, the guys who put on the team jersey and talk about the other side. And it really is a disease that's infecting all of our culture and all of our conversations. I'd love to have more of these conversations begin to make our overall culture a little bit more healthy. Again, I'm grateful to be a part of some of these that really make you think. And even as you, you've seen uh, over the last couple of weeks and, and last few months, uh, being able to have civil conversations across our differences, sometimes you get heated, you know? Anyway, if you could do that, that would be really terrific. All of it helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversation, just like the one we're having today with my pal, Mike Madrid. Mike Madrid, as you'll remember, is a national political strategist, an expert in demographics and Latino politics. Mike's academic work on Latino politics became the foundation for groundbreaking communications and outreach strategies in California, Texas, Florida, and nationwide. Later, Mike was a co-founder of the Lincoln Project, which played a significant part in defeating Donald Trump in 2020. And yes, that is not divisive to say that Donald Trump lost any more than saying gravity exists or two plus two equals four. Not divisive. <laughs> it just, just is what it is. But I digress. Mike also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. And he is the co-host of the Latino Vote podcast, along with Chuck Rocha. And most notably, Mike Madrid has now made his triumphant return to TPNR. And we are lucky to have him. Mike, good to see you, man. How you doing? Good. It's like Caesar coming back from Rome, right? It's my triumph. Got a That's right. Wreath, wreath of olive leaves around my head. I was like, I'm back. I've missed you, man. It's been a long, long time. And I love your show and to, to uh, watch your successes and, and the great guests you're, you have. You. Like, it's like, man, he's, he's doing something phenomenal here and, and people responding. So good for you. Thank you. Yeah. I dropped uh, our buddy Ron a note that I, I beat him to the punch with the Yasha Monk uh, interview mm. that was a great. I mean, that book. Have you read his book yet? The uh, the identity. Trap? I have not. I have not. I have read um, excerpts from. Yeah, it. it's thick. I mean, you're smarter than me, so it, it's probably not <laughs> as much heavy lifting intellectually for you as it is for me. But I'll tell you what. Next to um, John Rausch's book from a couple years ago, um, mm. the the Constitution of Knowledge. I think that's mm. a great. You know, it, it's a great continuation of that conversation. But, you know, I, I did before we dove into anything, I did want to ask you about this incredible pilgrimage you went on over the summer. Tell us a little bit about it. 
Well, you know, I mean, look, the, the past few years, I'm kind of at that point in my life where I'm, I'm you know, kind of in, I've always been a seeker. I'm always looking for deeper meaning and bigger understanding. And I, I approach the world through my own Catholic understanding, my own Catholic lens. Doesn't mean I'm really theologically tied in with the church 100%, but that's the way I view the world is, is through this Catholic perspective. And, um, you know, there's kind of this this big movement, which I think is great, uh, to, to kind of walk the Camino uh, in, in, um, in Spain, in northern Spain. But it's becoming so, like, overdone. It's becoming like Catholic Burning Man, as I say, right? <laughs> it's like there's thousands of people now walking on this journey, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's beautiful in its own way. But to me, kind of the walking, which is this meditative process of just walking day in and day out and over a period of time – really brings you to this heightened state of kind of spiritual awareness and, and gives you a clarity about a lot of things. And so I've been doing a lot more of this this year. And along kind of as I've been researching a lot of, you know, sort of these walks, especially through through Europe, where a lot of the pilgrims back in, in, the, in the Middle uh, Ages um, would try to walk to the Holy Land, uh, there, there's this, there, there has been this um, finding really in the 1970s, it was discovered, of these seven ancient monasteries dedicated to St. Michael. Oh. And it's called, they run on a perfectly straight linear line that matches up precisely with the summer solstice. Oh. And it it runs uh, directly from Southern Ireland, the Skellig Islands, uh, which I went to earlier this year, and then to Cornwall in Southern England, Mont St. Michel in France and Normandy, Turin, Italy, Puglia, Italy, Rhodes, Greece, and then it ends at Mount Haifa, uh, Mount Carmel in Haifa in the in the Holy Land, oh, wow. Israel. And it's a perfect geometric line. So there's the sword imagery, and um, that that imagery of the sword and what it has meant historically as a, as a metaphor um, is something that is kind of resurging now with especially the, the far right that is kind of trying to use this symbol. And and so it's kind of this convergence of all of the things that I've worked on, what St. Michael means to me in, in my Catholic tradition, but also what he has meant historically. He's this, he's this icon um, in, in, in three of the world's major religions, Christianity, of course, but also Judaism, where he is the defender of, of, the, of Israel and the Jewish people. And in also in Islam, he, he appears uh, all with the same imagery, all with the same understanding of this kind of early, you know, um, warrior angel imagery. And he's been used and abused um, to legitimize, you know, a lot of a rise of Christian nationalist elements as, as a political tool to cud, cud, cudgel other people. Right. And, and we've seen, you know, Michael's imagery used on both sides of battles. For thousands and thousands of years, you're, you're saying you know Saint Michael is is the patron saint of Kiev, you know, oh, in, in Ukraine, which you also Ukraine visited have, in the last year or so. Which and that's where a lot of this this interest began is being in the Maidan Square, you know, fifty sixty days after the war be, began in the Donbas, to be there and the air raid sirens going off and there's this beautiful square and and over the uh, you know the arc of the square is this really prominent. St. Michael statue is a reminder to the Ukrainian people that there's this history, this legacy of, of resistance and of fighting back and that they are a distinct people from the Russian people and that they um, th- this iconography is, is something that is profoundly important to the Ukrainian people and 
So, you know, as, as this, and, and at the same time, this Christian nationalist influence, this messaging that is clearly coming from Russia and the Russian Orthodox Church, by the way, mm. to foment divisions, not just in Western society, but as you probably know, I went to Brazil also during the Bolsonaro right. campaign. Yeah. yeah. And, and to see the influence of Christian uh, uh, extremism being used as a tool politically to, to, to support dictatorships and overthrow democracy is something that I think a lot about because it, I think it's going to be a really important um, element of, of our survival through this next phase of, of global history. And these tools are, are you know, that, that these bad guys are using are ancient tools. They're not, they're not new. This has been, been, you know, used throughout history and they're used throughout history because they work. Yeah. And, and, and there's a lot of, a lot of it that's working now. So, so I, I have a question. I'm not exactly sure how to articulate it as you're speaking. <laughs> it occurs to me that there are a couple of movements within what we think of as broadly the, uh, Repu- the, t- the contemporary Republican party or, you know, right wing extremism on, on the one side that might be even beyond what, you know, uh, Reagan conservatives would even think of as the GOP. So oh, yeah. there's also a movement that you've been tra- tracing for quite some time since at least the spring of 2022. Well, it's, it's your vocational work tracing how uh, la- the Latino vote is gravitating more and more to the Republican Party. But these two things and and the work that you've done recently, um, the report uh, the, the Latino, Latino Worker, Worker Project. Project, yeah. So the report that you, you've um, you've recently put together, you've been identifying uh, common virtues and values that characterize many people in the broader, very diverse Latino community that has mm-hmm. them gravitating more towards classically conservative uh, mm-hmm. politicians and leaders. But at the same time, there's this other movement that you're talking about now, this extremist violent movement that's hijacking uh, mm-hmm. some of that same language for something, you know, when, when I think of scripture, I think of uh, a brown-skinned messiah, you know, mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. that that didn't take, that that he was the son of God. He could have, you know, snapped his fingers and, and overpowered the entire Roman army. And yet, his his path to victory was through the cross. So I don't know these these two movements that are both happening within today's Republican Party seem to be at odds. So how is um, how is someone like you? How how are the people that you grew up with, your family? Um, how are they reckoning with these other movements? Or is it something where you can be sort of for, forgive me if this sounds rude, but like sort of cognitively dissonant, dissonant and, and mm-hmm. kind of blinding yourself to these other movements that really most prominently characterize today's Republican Party? Uh, how is, how is that, uh, those two movements that seem to be very different reckoning with each other? Boy, this is why I love doing the show, man. I, I, look, that's a great question. And um, it's kind of the question of my life, right? Is how do you reconcile all of these forces? Yeah. And uh, they, they are two great, significant social forces right now kind of converging at the same moment in time. And I think why I feel sort of, sort of fortunate is because both of those have really been the story of, kind of of my life. Yeah. And I, look, I grew up in Moorpark. I grew up in Ventura County. And it, uh, so I'm, I'm right there by, you know, in my first congressional races are right, right there where you guys are at there in that congressional district. And I, you know, I grew up kind of with the view of the field workers you know, in the early orchards in Park, and then looking up and being able to see the, the building of the Reagan Library, yeah. right? And this contrast was kind of my life, right? You've got the, the conservatism of, of Reaganism, which, which molded my political views, 
but the cultural affinity of the people that were working the land all in this kind of same imagery every day I would wake up to that. And so both of those are very real to me. And I understand it. And it, I understand this shift rightward. And I'll, I'll, I'll spend a little bit of time explaining and kind of walking through it right now. But the main thing I think people need to understand is that most of this is not driven. This rightward shift is not necessarily driven by this social conservatism that there has stereotypically been placed on Latinos. I'm not going to say all of it. There's clearly certain elements of it. Right. There, of course there are. But it's really more a function of sort of the economic populism that is that is that um, that um, describes the best the Republican Party at this moment in time as it moves away as it moves away from classical conservatism and towards a populist nationalism, and the cultural drift of the Democratic Party, um, and 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 that doesn't mean that Latinos are anti those issues. It just means that they're having a difficult time relating to the Democratic Party at this point in time. And, and that that issue really, I think, characterizes the congressional race that you're nestled in right now. Yeah. Is, is the Democrats have a really difficult time understanding that their candidates are not relatable to the Latino community. Right. And that is creating this dissonance that is making their – what should be on paper – the viability for their candidates a lot better, a lot stronger, a lot easier. But that district in a nutshell is the problems that the Democratic Party are having nationally with Latinos. Now, and a lot of a lot of prognosticators will come back and say, well, the Democrats are still winning, you know, 60-40 or whatever it is with, with Latinos. And that's true. But the margins are moving away. Right. And in a time, considerably, right, significantly, measurably, like it's moving away. Yeah. Obama was getting 75 percent of the Latino vote. Biden got 59 percent. That's a massive yeah. shift yeah. electorally in a country where nobody is undecided. Like there's a big thing happening. And, and, and so these margins are making it more and more difficult for Democrats to become viable with uh, in a lot of states. Now, that they're also picking up voters. They're picking up white, college-educated Republican women who basically, like, said, I've had it with the party of the Confederacy. I've had it with the, you know, the, the pro-choice, pro-life debate. Now that it's real, it's not this hypothetical. And, and I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm a Republican. I like my capital gains tax cut. I'm a member of the country club. I golf on Sundays, but I'm voting for the Democrats because this is just batshit crazy. Yeah. Right. And that's those two forces are really what is this 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 alignment that's happening. Um, And so but we also have to kind of more to your point, we also have to recognize and understand that the modern Republican Party is much more indicative and descriptive of a social phenomenon than it is a traditional political party. Yeah, that makes sense. And and that's when we start to look at it that way, we can start understanding its behavior and start coming to terms with the fact that. It, why, when we keep asking, why are these people acting so irrationally in a political construct? Why are they making these obviously bad decisions? Why are they being so deconstructive and destructive as opposed to trying to be productive and a part of the governance process? And the answer is because they're really, it's not really a political party anymore. It's part of a social backlash and a social reaction, and it's a social movement more than it is a political party. Yeah. So I've had this um, very unscientific theory, but it is being proven out uh, with great sociologists and academics that are really looking at these uh, these trends uh, more scientifically, if you will. And it's it's relevant because I just read today that Rupert Murdoch is stepping down from his role with Fox. 
And I was having this conversation yesterday that even if my some of my friends from church or the small business group that I go to here in Santa Clarita don't watch Fox News, they are in the ecosystem that yeah. Fox News. It's it's like the air that we breathe, you know. Yeah. So whether um, whether they're politically engaged or not, their friends from church, our friends from church, our friends mm-hmm. in the Chamber of Commerce have this just in their thinking without even realizing it. It's the, the, the joke about going to a fish and saying, hey, hi, what do you think of the water? And the fish is like, well, what's water? What are you talking about? You know, they don't even realize yeah. that they're thinking about it. So I'm wondering, um, and, and it's not just Fox News, obviously, it's an entire media ecosystem that creates mm-hmm. the language and, and the subconscious and semi-conscious thinking of folks in this cultural movement. So when you say, wait, wait a second, Biden did all of these things, his administration did all of these things that are bipartisan, that a lot of classical conservatives would appreciate. The, mm-hmm. the, the work that's being done on the five is from the bipartisan infrastructure bill, doesn't register. But whatever the top stories on Fox News are, is the general prevailing concern, you know, transgender issues or um, I, I can't. Critical race theory. Yeah, critical race theory. Great replacement theory. And they change. They change every few months when they run their course. Yeah. Uh, Fox News throws something else into the into the mix, and they get people all hopped up and wired up. Yeah. Look, it's really important to understand something about Fox News. Fox News is just the top of the pyramid, and this is not organic. Mm. People, you got to really understand this. As somebody who's worked with conservative and you know causes and issues, I'm you know Republican for thirty years. This is not. This didn't develop on its own. This is an extraordinarily sophisticated, extraordinarily well-resourced, targeted, structured uh, media silo. It is incredibly sophisticated mm. to the point as when I was working on the Lincoln Project, when we were seeing this stuff and, and the difficulties of breaking through, we realized this isn't just a traditional political campaign. These are psyops, is what they're called. This is very sophisticated psychological warfare. It's information warfare, and that's when you realize the depths of what some of our foreign enemies have been doing and have been involved in. Yeah. And again, another reason why we went to, to Ukraine is because we were successful in piercing through that bubble with, with some of these Republicans, and the question became, became, can we also break through to the Russian populace, even though Russia has so deeply contained its communications infrastructure with the Russian people as a way to destabilize the regime? And what you're articulating is exactly right. You don't have to be watching Fox News every day to be uh, consuming the, the, the messaging and, the, the, frankly, the Russian talking points that are coming out of those uh, mouthpieces. Yeah. Uh, but it is remarkable how, how um, addictive it is. And it's all designed to be addictive. It's designed to scare people and frighten people. And anger people. Yeah. And those are all very addictive emotions. Right. The more scared you get, the more inclined you are to keep watching more to be to be hooked on that fear and get that that hit of more fear and more anger. And so a lot of times we look at our, you know, conservative friends or conservative neighbors and it's like, it's a beautiful day. Why are you just so angry at life? Like how how can how can life be that angry? And the reason is they're they're just so hopped up of watching hours of angry media yeah. that they're mad at the Muslims, they're mad at the transgender, they're mad at the communists, they're mad at the illegals, they're mad at Antifa, they're mad at everything is a threat. Everything is a threat. 
And what Fox has realized is every few weeks or months, they've got to throw something new, a new cultural war, uh, a cultural um, um, uh, tactic into this war, this ongoing war to keep people angry because that's what fuels their war machine. Right. So you've been um, working uh, for the last several years on specific districts, specific areas, specific states – and what we, I think, what we, what you would call it, is the Bannon line. So it's a matter of, uh, just as an example, going to Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where mm-hmm. there's a lot of college-educated women, where mm-hmm. it doesn't take swinging, uh, swinging that uh, the voters there by ten percent. It takes swinging the voters there by three or four percent. Um, right. You know, and and you are, uh, you have been successful in making progress in those key states. Clearly. Mm-hmm. In 2020 and 2022, I'm wondering though if there is sim- if there are similar efforts that can be made at the cultural level, or is that just not your field of play? It's becoming my field of play because politics is increasingly becoming um, less. It's becoming less possible to make change in the political space as we have become so calcified in our own silos. We're in a state of, of war right now. It's like trench warfare. It's just like World War One. Obviously, you know, it's not nearly as violent yet, although violence has emanated and we're seeing we're seeing signs of society becoming more violent as a result of our politics. I think that will continue over the next decade. But my point is we're we're literally like you know, in the, in the, the trenches uh, in, in France, you know, in no man's land where people are, you know, struggling to get inches yeah. uh, in this combat of, of politics. And so I'm not interested much in that. And, and politics being downstream from culture, we have to recognize that until our culture changes, our politics will never change in a meaningful way. And and that's why I really have a problem with kind of some of the reform groups out there. And these like, well, we need a third party or we need like ranked choice voting and we need other. And I, that, that may be. Those are fine. But th- that's really, really, really small band-aids on a larger social problem that we're having as a country. And And what I want to do is spend the next part of my life kind of explaining some of the cultural dynamics that have led us to this place in politics. Because our politicians have not led us to this place. The politicians are responding to what is evident in the culture. And that really explains why the Republican Party was able to capitulate and compromise completely on all of its basic core values during the Trump era. It just completely gave up on Reaganism and turned to something completely different. I mean, how else do you explain that? That Donald Trump now, right, who's got 91 federal indictments and tried to overthrow the government, not not only that, set that aside, the the law and order party, let's just set that aside for a second. He also just announced he's going to increase tariffs globally on all global partners by 10%. That means the Republican nominee is running on the largest tax increase in modern history. And the Republicans are just fine with it. They're like, oh, yeah, 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 let's do that. And so, so there's no underlying orthodoxy or philosophy anymore in the Republican Party. It's a mob. And that mob, and I don't mean that derisively, I mean it descriptively, and I use the term mob specifically because that's the language in the Federalist Papers. That's precisely what Madison and others were warning us about, is mob rule, is faction, is you can have an element of people who don't look at things rationally or for the common good that can run over the entire system if you don't have a prudent sense of checks and balances and come up with this elegant design of balancing power. 
And that if that doesn't describe what's happening at this moment in time, I don't know what does. It's the perfect encapsulation of people willing to run roughshod, overthrow the government, destroy our institutions for some perceived view of the world right. that never existed in reality and won't exist even if they're successful. I don't it's very have dangerous. nearly enough whiskey for how you're making me feel right now. <laughs> well, I, and I, this is always funny because every time I do these interviews and I'm like, but, and here's the big but, I'm actually very optimistic about well, where things are at. Okay, so I'm optimistic too. And there's one little um, shed of light. Uh, yeah. I, I told you I, I was going to ask you about... Um, a local politician who's running for state senate here in our district uh, in California, uh, Suzette Valderas. She's a mm-hmm. Republican, uh, yeah. small business conservative uh, by her record for what she voted for when she served in state assembly. Uh, she's running to replace Scott Wilk, the Republican who has our Senate seat, uh, state Senate seat here and terming out. Now, she is um, still a conservative. However, she, when she was in the assembly, she was one of the founders of the Problem Solvers Caucus, uh, which means that she doesn't see the, the, the way many uh, Republicans talk about Democrats. It is the enemy, not the loyal opposition. And, uh, you know, any capitulation to even speaking with them is seen as weakness. And, and you know, you would lose your, your, your hardcore followers. She helped mm-hmm. to found the Problem Solvers Caucus. She even voted for um, Newsom's uh, constitutional amendment uh, to protect a woman's right to choose. So she, mm-hmm. at times, has exhibited an independence uh, and a willingness to collaborate, I guess by necessity in California's uh, state legislature, a Republican would have to be willing to, to collaborate um, it, to, to be part of anything that gets done. So the question is, is Suzette Valderas a sign of hope and the possibility of the future of the party, or is she the last of a, a dying breed of, of the GOP? Look, I like Suzette a lot. And when she was first running for the assembly, we sat down and talked. And I had one fundamental question for her, which has really always stuck in my craw. And that is, do you support Donald Trump? Mm. Nothing else matters. Let me answer that question. I went to one of her first uh, announcement meetings. uh, And she said flat, one of the first things she said to this room, most of whom are, you know, red hat wearing MAGA, you know, Donald Trump, rah, rah, rah folks. Most, not not the entire room, uh, but most of whom. And she said flat out, Donald Trump does not is not a good representative for our party. He's not he's not a good leader. Of, flat out, she made no bones about it. Black and white. Did she vote? I, did, she, did she vote for him? I didn't ask the question. I didn't ask. Yeah, the she question. did. The answer is yes, she did. Okay, all right. And so that's what bothers me. That's what bothers me about these Republicans. And maybe you know, let's have her have her on again. But I said, look, I I, I won't help you. I won't help anybody who, who supported Donald Trump. I'm Republican, mm. and and I don't oppose Donald Trump despite my conservatism. I I oppose Donald Trump because of my conservatism. Is Donald Trump is the biggest threat to conservatism than any Democrat ever was. And so even before January sixth, th- you're saying even before January sixth, twenty twenty one, before he was elected, as he was running for president. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been very consistent in this. Since since he came down the escalator and started attacking people, I agree with that. You know, and, and some of my favorite uh, uh, thinkers, uh, you know, identified even strong longtime conservatives, Pete Wayne or Dr. Russell Moore. These guys in 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 June of 2015, it's July, the latest of 2015, were saying the same thing. I think the difference between you and me is that I'll. I'll hold that exit ramp open at any time for anybody who wants to hop off. You, the water's warm. Hop on in. I don't, you know, I'm not going to hold it against you. Well, maybe I will, you know, give you shit that it took you this 
freaking long. This, um, this is but, really this is a really good discussion, and it's an important one that I've had with kind of the never Trump factions. You know, with people at the national level, I got into a big screaming match with somebody that you would know, but I'm not, I'm not going to say who it is. Oh, do tell. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I won't do that. But you, you would That's know fine. who you would know. big na- big national figure um, who's 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 a prominent you know never Trumper now, but worked in the Trump administration. And and my argument to them is this. I believe, in large part because of my Catholic tradition, that no man, no woman, no man is beyond um, redemption. That, that contrition and God's love is, 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 is so enormous. I, who, who am I to think that you can't be forgiven? But forgiveness and redemption require one really important thing, contrition. Mm. It, it requires a sincere change in your heart about what you've done or what you believed. And until you're contrite, I, I, it's, just op- it's just rank opportunism. So all of these people that worked in the Trump administration who were like, oh, yeah, well, I was trying to be the adult in the room and I was trying to, you know, manage these decisions and all of this, you know, nonsense to me is just that. Chris Christie, for example. Chris Christie has never said, I was wrong and I apologize to the American people and to my own soul for working for this evil man. No, no. Chris Christie has never said that. What Chris Christie says is, I was trying to help the country by being the smartest guy in the room and guiding Donald Trump in a certain direction. Those are two very different things. And people who don't understand that distinction are choosing not to see that distinction. Because contrition is a very important part of our lives as human beings. And I believe that when people are contrite, they should be forgiven. Okay, because it's not up for me to, to offer forgiveness, right, or redemption. There's, there's, a, there's a higher power there. So if, if that love is capable of doing it, then I'm willing to do that. And for those people that did, and there have been former Trump staffers that have done that, I, I will give you all the leash in the world and welcome onto the fight and the good side to fight against the scourge that is afflicting our nation. But, and this is getting right back to the question, of, yeah. if not, it is simple political doublespeak. And that's where I have a problem. I've got a real problem when somebody stands up and says, Donald Trump is not a good representative of our party. I don't like his behavior. He's mean to people and he's, he's discriminatory. But if he's the nominee of the party, then I'm going to vote for him. Like that's mm. worse. That's worse than just going out and buying a pickup truck, slapping a Confederate flag and a gun rack on the back and, and, you know, and, and, and putting a, a Confederate monument on your, on your lawn. I'd rather have the honesty of what you're supporting than the duplicitousness because that duplicitousness is what got us to where we're at at this moment, this very deeply precarious moment in time in our nation's history. It's those enablers. It's those politicians who can't speak with authority, with leadership, and with conviction about the dangers facing this country, they're more interested in getting elected to go to Sacramento or Washington, D.C., and I've got no appetite for that. Let me ask you this. Bring it, bring it right down home to I – always, I always come back to the Thanksgiving table or you know, mm-hmm. just coffee or a beer with your, your buddy. You know, you're up in, in Northern California. I'm down here in SoCal. You, know, you meet a buddy for, for, at the coffee shop. Um, or you run into somebody in line at the grocery store that you know, you know from church or or around town. Uh, you know, you have a conversation with somebody who is. I and I literally I was on the phone with somebody the other day, a uh, guy that I really really like, but he said exactly what you just said. He said, you know, but I hate Donald Trump, 
But listen, if Biden's a nominee again, I'm just going to have to begrudgingly vote for Trump. So what is that conversation? What can that conversation with a friend of mine, a guy that I, I genuinely like, what can that conversation look like to maybe move the needle just a little bit with my, with, with my friend? Well, here's where we see things differently, because I, I don't give your friend the benefit of the doubt. I, I've just dealt with too many voters, and I understand voter mm. psychology too well. It's, it's, it, it is a morally cowardice position to say, I don't like him, and I think he's horrible, and I think he's a bad man, but if he's running against Joe Biden, like Joe Biden somehow morally worse than Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is, the, by, by any estimation, by any objective estimation, light years worse than any president we have ever had before on the moral you know, chart here, okay? So it's not even a, it's not even a real debate. To somehow say, to somehow say, but if it's against Joe Biden, then, you know, I, I got to vote for Donald Trump again. That, that's just a coward. That's cowardice. And, and like I said, I, and I, you know, I, I know that your show is about kind of reconciliation. How do we work together? <laughs> and I appreciate that. I'm a political consultant. And at a certain point, there were people that are, we call them unsalvageable. It's like they're just they've 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 drank the Kool Aid and they've developed their own way of surviving by using yeah. socially acceptable language to justify what they know is clearly morally wrong. Let me say that again for your viewers. It's extremely important. A lot of what we're seeing today with Trump supporters is all about developing the language where people can say something that is socially acceptable to justify what they know they know to be morally wrong. And that is a huge character flaw in the American character at this moment in time is people are how many conversations have you had with people who support Donald Trump? They're like, I don't like what he tweets. Yeah, I don't like what he says either, but I like his policies. As if anybody knows what the guy's policies are, right? <laughs> all, all, of this, all of this is a veneer as a justification to do what they know is quantifiably wrong. And I would say exactly that to your friend in a friendly way over lunch if we were having lunch with them is to say, you know what you're doing is wrong. That was the speech I gave at Cooper Union with the Lincoln mm. Project on the 160th anniversary is you know – you know in your heart, I can explain to you a million different ways with the right language and you'll continue to deny it. And the reason why you will continue to deny it is because you know it's wrong. It right. does, we are all innately born, or most of us anyway, some psychopaths are not, but most of us are innately born with a sense of right and wrong. I believe 90% of Donald Trump supporters know what they're doing is wrong. They have developed a way of justifying it in their own mind by somehow making Joe Biden the leader of a crime family while he's also suffering from dementia, right? Like he's just he's a leader of this sophisticated global organized crime family. Oh, but he also doesn't know how to tie his shoes. The cognitive dissonance is, is kind of horrifying. Yeah. yeah, that's where I'm a little bit uh, at a loss is that when you when I have been able to engage on substance – Listen, you can disagree with the um, the legislation that Manchin led um, that that ended up lowering drug prices and doing some things uh, environmentally. That was a compromise. You can disagree with how they're 
um, executing the bipartisan infrastructure bill or the gun legislation that uh, I think it was Cornyn, Cornyn from Texas. Mm-hmm. I think he led that legislation or any number of uh, half a dozen other big pieces of legislation. The, the recent one with uh, with McCarthy, where, where they avoided the um, the the financial cliff. Uh, it was all bipartisan. So but on substance, that that seems to go nowhere either. Because, again, the distraction is, you know, like you said, Antifa or Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter or uh, transgender, uh, you know, coming to steal your children Trans. and your stoves. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, <laughs> you know? right, right, right. It's just this, <laughs> this we, we've entered this this time of absurdity. And what I would really caution people, again, as somebody who deals with political decision making and has really analyzed voting, the voting decision and voting processes for 30 years the time for educating these people is gone. And I, look, I'm not saying that there isn't virtue and value in trying to find that common ground. What I'm saying is, as a practical matter, the chances of finding enough common ground to continue this American experiment are virtually nil. Mm. The good thing is, and this is the basis yeah. of the book that, I'm, that will, I'm, I'm writing – Pre-order your copy. I wanted to get to this. So is it a nonfiction book or is it – It's called The Latino Solution, How America's Largest Minority is Shaping Our Democracy. Because I believe that demographically – I'm a big believer in evidence and data and science and politics, right? A lot of – we love politics because everybody can be a a political expert, right? And everybody's got opinions on it and we're often passionate about it. It's one of the things that makes our lives really rich. But there is a lot of science behind this. And throughout my career, I think one of my successes as a political consultant – is trying to discern between the emotionally charged issues and what is actually scientifically driving voter behavior. And one of the things that we uh, that I am finding is that as we kind of enter this new pluralistic age, this pluralistic society, um, the chances of us surviving Trumpism is really more of a demographic question, a science question, than it is an ideological or philosophical question. And let me explain that, what I mean by that. The chances of persuading a Donald Trump voter to not vote for Donald Trump or to vote for Joe Biden. Remember, these are people who, who believe that the coronavirus is a hoax. Yeah. They believe that, you know, Donald Trump, that the election was stolen. <laughs> they, they, believe, they, they believe a litany of things that are quantifiably, obviously on their face, not true. So how are you going to persuade that person with direct mail or a TV commercial not to vote for Joe Biden? The answer is you're not. So quit trying and focus on the important things, which is getting younger people to vote and active and civically engaged and continue to outnumber them. Because every day that goes by in America, let me say this again for effect, every day literally that goes by in America through simple actuarial tables is the day we get closer to Trumpism coming to its end. Because Donald Trump only won over 50% of people 65 plus. And these are the people that are dying faster and they're being replaced by younger, more multicultural uh, people with a very different worldview. And they are registering. And so simple math would suggest, again, demographic change, that every day that we go forward and every day that we're able to survive, the easier the conflict uh, becomes to resolving itself because we are not going to change the minds of these people. We're not. And we need to stop fooling ourselves and wasting precious time, effort, and energy when it can be spent in more productive ways to get our society and our, and our, and our civic life back into a healthy, functioning place. 
So I, I don't know if you've been reading, but uh, I just read a story today that Josh Shapiro, governor of Pennsylvania, is uh, pushing for or he's moving um, legislation forward. Is it legislation or is it just how 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 does it work? It, I, the story was about opt Same out registration. versus opt in voter registration. Mm-hmm. So is that yeah. the kind of uh, tactic yeah. that you think is going to yeah. be really effective? Yeah, I mean that's exactly right. I mean, look, I'm I'm not a big believer. Like for example, in California, we have. We have the most progressive, and I don't mean that in an ideological sense, although that's probably true too, but the most expansive ways of voting in the country. We also have some of the lowest voter turnout in the country. So the problem isn't a process problem. Okay. The problem is a cultural problem. And that's what I keep getting back to is politics is downstream of culture. If you want to figure out what's wrong with our political system, look at our culture. And if you fix and work to fix the culture – and create more civic engagement and do and, 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 and implement policies that inspire people and engage people and give them a stake in their society, that will ultimately manifest itself in the body politic. And that's a big part of what we're experiencing right now. But in the short term, yes, the more young people you can register and bring online, the greater effect that it's going to have in, in, in terms of our democracy. I mean, look, there's plenty of evidence to suggest Again, this race, this last race in 2020, came down to, you know, 30,000, 40,000 voters in a couple of states. Right. Did COVID, the COVID deaths in Georgia and Arizona, which were overwhelmingly with 65-year-olds and over, overwhelmingly Republicans in states where they didn't require masks, did those deaths throw the election to Joe Biden? Yeah. Yes, they did. If, 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 if Donald Trump had simply said, wear a mask— Let's all come together as a country and fight this virus, you know, together. He would have won re-election, undeniably, undeniably. But he couldn't, and he wouldn't. And, and he, the Republicans killing their own people has moved this actuarial table. Uh, it, it, it hit, stepped on the gas and saved us for at least the next four years. So there's a simple mathematical parts to all this. It's kind of like Malcolm Gladwell looking at these races is we look at them like all, you know, as, as which candidate would you rather have a beer with? And what is, is, is Joe Biden too old? Does it matter if Donald Trump is in jail? Ninety nine percent of that doesn't matter because most Trump supporters, including your friend, by the way, at lunch, if Donald Trump was convicted and went to jail and was still running for president, he would vote for him. I guarantee you he would. He would hem and haw about it over his, you know, BLT sandwich. But when he went back into that booth in the private, he would absolutely vote for him. And the same thing is true of Democratic voters. I was, I was having a, a conversation with this uh, with, with uh, some legislators, Democratic legislators. And I was like, you think this is a Republican phenomenon? Remember the National Organization of Women defending Bill Clinton during the Monica Lewinsky scandal? Yeah. The National Organization of Women. Like, it's it, it, horrifying, like shocking, like you're standing behind this guy taking advantage of this young woman in a clear power. She's an intern and he's the most powerful man in the world. Like, that's OK. Uh, you know, and, and they would go through their own Hippocratic, hypocritical, you know, rationale of why it was OK. It's not OK. Yeah. It, was, it was never OK. And there's a new reckoning about it. But let's not let's not fool ourselves or delude ourselves into thinking that it's just Republicans who do this. Both parties do this because we have this sickness in our society where somehow our partisanship is one of the most virtuous identifiers that we have. They're just political parties, guys. Yeah. I want to write a paper or a column or something uh, that uh, entitled why your vote is like a Big Mac. (laughs) 
It's empty calorie voting because yeah. we know in advance that you're never going to check a box from the other party. Uh, you know, in addition to the fact that a lot of your votes really don't matter, like in California, New York, Texas. Uh, well, maybe Texas, uh, I would take off that list. But certain states, the top of the ticket is already predetermined. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's at least four states, arguably five or six, uh, where the presidential race is going to be uh, determined. That's but, it. You know, that that's it. That's it. And but, ninety and ninety percent ninety percent of the votes in those states are predetermined. Ninety five percent of them are. Right. So it's those five percent in Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, maybe North Carolina, maybe yeah. well, Michigan well, has already right. declared itself, or Minnesota, arguably. Yeah, and so look, when I was doing the work on the Lincoln Project, and you know, it's like we were targeting a million voters was the universe, which means we were really mm. drilling down and talking to two hundred fifty thousand people in an election where one hundred and fifty million voted. Let me say that again: one hundred fifty million people voted. We were targeting. We knew only two hundred fifty thousand votes truly, genuinely mattered. And when it came down to it, Biden wins by essentially thirty-five, forty thousand votes across a couple states. Now, now keep in mind. If you win by 30,000 votes, that means if 15,000 votes switched, voting is a two, it's a, you know, you're not, you only not vote for, for Biden, you then vote for Trump, it's a two-vote move. So 15,000 votes either way determines the outcome. 15,000 people out of 150 million voting, right? That and is so we scary. Know, yeah, we know where they're at. We know roughly who they are, literally, who they are, but but that's it, man. We that, and that's why when we talk about campaign spending and billions of dollars, none of this really matters. People talk about the debates and how important that is. No, it doesn't matter. None of the, none of this stuff matters. It's all theater. It's important. It's part of what we do as a democracy. Most of it is meaningless anyway. It all comes down to fifteen to thirty thousand voters across four or five different states, as you just said. That's where the balance of power is. And there's only fifteen to thirty thousand people across five six states that are genuinely, genuinely deciding who do I want to vote for for president because I am genuinely, truly undecided out of 150 million. And that's, that's how our elections are decided. So I want to ask you two questions, uh, two related questions. One is, are you still convinced or are you convinced at all that Donald Trump is the nominee? Uh, that's number oh, yeah. one. He, so yeah. he's, but, but don't you think... I mean, I, I've been following, I've been following the um, the four criminal cases very, very closely. So mm-hmm. ninety, as you said, ninety one uh, charges. Mm-hmm. There's there's a significant chance that he'll be convicted mm-hmm. of a, a, a good por- a dozens of dozens <laughs> of those charges yeah. before yeah. before the election. You know, and the scariest one I would have to think is any of any of the uh, the charges in, in Georgia. There's no pardon. So, mm-hmm. do you think are you are you of the same mind as I am that there's a significant chance that he'll be found guilty of at least yes. some of those charges, if not dozens, if not all of those charges? Yes. Before the uh, before the election, and how does that affect your thinking about whether he's uh, he's a he's a shoe in to be the nominee? It makes him stronger from the from the GOP perspective because you have to from understand. Jail. From jail, convicted. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, in an orange jumpsuit. Yes, and, and let me explain why. Let me explain. See, Donald Trump is not is not gathering support in the Republican primary despite these legal problems. He's gathering support because of these legal problems. He's he has correctly convinced the cult that he is being politically prosecuted. 
that this is only happening because the Democrats fear him so much. And when you understand that the Republican Party, again, this is not a healthy political party. We need to stop looking at it like it's a rational political party the way we have known it for 150 years. It is not. And if you keep looking at it that way, you will drive yourself crazy. As I said at the (laughs) intro, it's a social phenomenon. It's not a political party. This is a social movement. Okay. And it's a countercultural movement. That is based on being anti-science, anti-evidence, anti-higher education, anti-media, anti-government. It is truly countercultural, which means that when it is attacked, and he says very clearly, they're not coming after me, they're coming after you, I'm just standing in the way. When people believe that their worldview is being attacked by all of these institutions, he becomes the vanguard. He becomes all that they have to hold on to. So him going to jail makes that more intense. It makes it stronger. It makes the backing and the supporting. It's why his numbers have moved up every time he's gotten more charges. The more he's gotten indicted, the more legal trouble he gets into, his numbers keep going up. And I would suggest very strongly, even the you know 30 or 40 scattered votes for everybody else, 85% of that is a true Trump vote. Truly, Mm -hmm. you're going to start to see it consolidate as we get closer to the primaries. And so, you know, could he lose in New Hampshire? Possibly, possibly. But but so what? I mean, he's going to win the nomination barring something extraordinary. And I mean, like life alteringly, you know, uh, uh, look, we have campaigns for a reason. But the fundamentals of this race strongly point to a Biden Trump competition with, at least at this point in time, Biden winning by a pretty decent margin uh, in November. Yeah. So you've been talking about it, it, politics is downstream of the culture. You, we mm-hmm. talked about your book. The book's coming out in, in the spring? So the book will be out in May or June of 2024. It'll be called The Latino Solution, How America's, minority, America's Largest Minority is Shaping Our Democracy. Okay. We, we touched uh, a And I'll be on again bit. before. We'll talk about the book before, uh, before time Absolutely. comes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, this is p- part of a, a bigger question. We talked a little bit about the Latino Worker Project that you co-authored. Um, mm-hmm. Before we hit record, you mentioned that you're you're also planning a, a not a fiction book. Um, mm-hmm. But my, my bigger question is, if politics is downstream of culture, what are some of the other things that you're doing, uh, for lack of a better word, as an activist to mm-hmm. move that line that you talked about in this culture I guess we can call it a culture war. Or yeah. Tell me if you disagree. It is a culture war. No, no, it's absolutely a culture war. And it's actually, this is the way warfare is going to be fought in the digital age. That's what we have to really understand is because of our life experiences and because of history, we view wars as kinetic wars, as ground wars. And so when we look to Ukraine, we're like, well, that's what a war looks like. And that mm-hmm. is true. But the truth of the matter is in the digital age, warfare is going to look like a lot like currency wars and and misinformation wars and destabilization tactics between states. Everything that we are dealing with right now with Russia and China and Iran and probably the Saudis, all of this stuff has been actively engaged for a long, long time, more than a decade. And so as I tell people all the time, the war with China and the war with Russia is not coming. It's already here. It's been happening. They, the, the Russians influenced our election in 2016, quantifiably. I mean, just, they just did. And they tried in 2020, and they will try again forever. And look, let's be honest about it. 
Are we influencing their governments? Of course we are. We're the best at it. We've been doing this all over the globe for a long, long time, okay? Let's not be shocked by that. Yes, the United States has been interfering with elections and with, you know, dictators for a very long time, and we're damn good at it. So, look, the way I view myself is is, is being involved in politics in a very different way. I don't, I'm, I'm very, very unlikely going to be involved in kind of the trench warfare of campaigns because I don't think that they're doing much anymore, as I mentioned. And again, I, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that. But influencing culture first comes with explaining to people what's happening. And that's kind of what I really enjoy is going and trying to articulate people and tell them a story to give them a deeper understanding as to why is our society behaving the way that it is. Because I also don't believe that the politicians can be trusted to solve these problems because they just wake up ready to react to whatever the situation they see. And in an information age, that, that filter that the founding fathers created is going to work less and less. It's going to be less effective, which is why 98% of these people get reelected anyway, even in districts where they probably aren't necessarily the best fit. So, so what I think I'm going to be spending a big part of my time on is still talking about politics doing a lot of writing, a lot of researching, a lot of speaking, a lot of you know interviews and discussions like this on what the major tectonic shifts are happening in society, uh, what they are so that people get a better understanding of what that means politically. Because again, politics is, is the last sign. It's not the first. It's not the indicator of what's happening. It's a reflection of what's happening. Interesting stuff, man. Um, you know, I, I do. Before we close, I do. I'd be remiss if I didn't. We've talked a lot about the presidential level, uh, but you know, a lot is also going to be decided in the uh, House and the Senate. You probably would agree with me that the Senate's the numbers just aren't in favor of Democrats going into twenty twenty four. They're not in favor of the Democrats. It's going to be tough, tough yeah. hill to climb. But the House is is um, is really interesting to me. I mean, I as you know, I live in California twenty seven, one of those districts. I it was noteworthy that that Mike Garcia. Uh, spoke out very, very strongly against some of the ex- extremists in his party. It was one of the very few times, if not the only time, that I've heard him that vocal against other Republicans. Um, so uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe he's recognizing the purple district that we are and is trying to uh, assure yeah. that he gets his third his third term. Yeah, Garcia is actually doing it right. Let me say a few things about California 27. The first, and this is the most important data point, uh, I, it's one of the top four or five districts in America held by a Republican with the highest number of college graduates. It's very important because it means there is some discernment. Those are votes that you actually can educate and move. Not a lot, but enough. Okay. And California 27, along with a couple in Orange County, and then like the George Santos district in, in, uh, in, <laughs> yeah. in New York, there's a couple in Long Island that, uh, that reflect that. There's only like six or seven of these that have these really considerable numbers of, of college-educated people. California 27 is at the top of, of that list. Garcia is doing something very shrewd, and what Mike does is he's now beginning to talk about the extremism, even though he's still voting with them. And, and that's that, politically, I mean, I think it's, I think it's you know, abhorrent, but th- that, that, that is the right political thing to do, right? Is you can say, I'm not them, I'm not of them, but I vote with them, and everything they want me to do, I'm, I'm going to go and do. Um, the, the, the real problem for me in, in California 27, the political malpractice, is that the Democrats can't figure out the right combination to put up to win this race. And it's not complicated, folks. It's not. It's not rich, white progressives. That's not how you win a seat like this. And even if you were to win it in a, in a you know, huge year, which this might be that year. I, I don't think it will be, but it might be. 
your chances of defending it, especially in the off cycle, are, are, are not good. Uh, but it's the same thing as the Duarte, John Duarte seat, the Republican-held seat up in the Central Valley, up here in this area. If if the Democrats had just run Latino candidates in both of these, they, they would have won both seats now. And McCarthy's chance of being speaker would be down to, you know, Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates. Think about that. And, and so, so think about that, right? Like Boebert, Gates, and Santos, he would need all three of those votes. Not looking good for Kevin if that's the situation. Um, so to meet California 27 is this kind of frustrating anomaly because it's very clear what the Democrats need to do. They just can't get out of their own way. And it does have national ramifications. Um, but I do believe I do believe that the Democrats will take the House. Mm. Yeah. If Santos is reelected in that district in New York, I, I will know that revelation is upon us. <laughs> he, yeah, I don't I don't I don't think he will be. I think he loses in the primary. But yeah. Oh, man. Um, so, OK. So I have to ask you that. We've been talking about it the whole time, but I got to ask you the TPNR question. What do you think? What do you think? So you've been talking about what you can do, but what can each of us do to be able to share space with, have better conversations with, perhaps even nurture relationships with people across our differences? So that means people who think differently than we do, have different beliefs than we do, who get their news from different sources than we do. How can we do better at talk of politics and religion without killing each other? Or is it even possible? Well, I mean, I'm a very big believer. And like I said earlier, as, as, as much as this may sound like you need a drink after having an interview with Mike Madrid about the state of things, <laughs> fair, fair enough. What I will say is, again, I'm an optimist. And so let me end by explaining why I am. I believe that character for individuals and for nations and for communities and countries is born and forged through conflict. And we are e- en- exiting an era that went from 1989 till 2021 where we, there was really this Pax Americana. Yes, we had wars in Afghanistan. Yes, we had wars in the Middle East. But by and large, most Americans didn't even know we were at war. We are now, there's a hot war in Europe. And the question about what our role is going to be is one that is visited upon us daily. And the internal struggle to survive and continue the American experiment is with us daily, again, from inside. As Lincoln famously quipped, the end of the American Republic will not come from foreign enemies. It will come from domestic enemies. The only way this mm. experiment dies is, is internally. And this is that moment. It's as big a moment as it was during the Civil War, the last great struggle that we had internally. And I believe that we will be victorious. I believe that we will be a better people for this. And I believe that we will move the arc of progress in a positive direction. But, and this is a very big but, it does not happen without struggle. It does not happen without conflict. It does not happen without sacrifice. The good thing is all three of those things build character. And we have been so luxurious. I don't know if that's the right word. We have been so spoiled from the 1989 to 2021 years that we have lost our, our strength of character. And we, it means you can lose freedom. We can lose liberty. You can lose these constitutional rights that we've protected because we have not had to fight for them. And so we don't appreciate them. And that's, I think, the most important thing that we can do as individuals. Again, you can write your congressman. You can go and vote. You can do all that stuff that you've been doing. And you should continue those. But that, again, is the outward reflection. The best way to be a good American is to be a good American, is to be a good person, but continue the fight for civic virtue. Be 
everything that you want the country to be because that instills our national character. Fight against what is wrong, fight against what is bad, and stand up vocally, vociferously, and push back even on issues that do not seem big because that's what defines who we are as a people. You're not just standing up for yourself and standing up for your own values. You are publicly telling people this is what is right. And right makes might, as Abraham Lincoln famously said, again, at the Cooper Union speech. And indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. That's what American character is. And as tough as it's going to be, it's like getting back into the gym and putting in the hard work and building back this body that we've gotten that has gotten really, really soft over the years. This is going to be a fight. It's going to be a struggle, but we're going to be a better people for it with a real true appreciation for what we have and a keen awareness of how easy and quickly it can be lost. So it's interesting because you've been talking about this fight for civic virtue and have articulated it in similar ways since the very first time we talked, at least a couple of years ago. And, but you, you also talked about it as a generational fight, as a decade, if not decades long fight. From the first time we talked to now, are you moving that timeline further out? Or do you think over these last couple of years we've gotten any closer to? It's closer. Uh, yeah, yeah, to the finish line. I, and I will tell you, you know, a lot of people were very rightfully worried about the 2020 election. That's right. I think I got to know a lot of people to work on the Lincoln Project. The bigger election for me that was scarier was the 2022 election, is what was going to happen in the midterms. And um, I, I, I think we passed the test as an American people with flying colors. The, the, the electorate in the 2022 midterms was older, it was whiter, uh, and it was more conservative, more Republican than it was in 2020. And Democrats did really well, which means that Republicans, enough Republicans were continuing to defect from the party and saying, these people are nuts. They did it in 20, <laughs> they did it in 2018, they did it in 2020, and they did it in 2022. That's a really good sign. That means that there are enough Republicans, not a lot, and there will never be half of them. The party of Reagan and Bush is never coming back. Those days are gone. Quit looking for them. They will never, ever come back. We're heading into a totally new transformational space. But we are, as I said again earlier, actuarially, from an evidence database demographic place, every day that we wake up and America is still here and going is a day that we are closer to continuing the experiment. And I don't mean to be macabre, but what I literally mean is Donald Trump's base is literally dying out and they are being replaced by people who don't buy into this kind of fascist authoritarian argument. It's just math at this point. And so every day that goes by, there is more hope. We are getting closer to a different place. Yeah. I guess the question then is, are those 18 to 25-year-olds who do vote to replace some of the uh, MAGA voters who are dying off, are enough of them going to vote for Cornell West to move the, to move the election? You know? yeah, I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a great topic that you should have on if you haven't explored this, because the number one threat, the, the greatest chance of Donald Trump being elected is a third-party candidacy, Yeah, whether it's no labels or I do or plan Cornell on having uh, someone... Yeah, I, I do yeah. plan on having someone from the Working Families Party, but that's yeah, to yeah. your point. It's a question for another day. Uh, two that more questions. Great, that's probably Donald Trump's best and only chance is if there is yeah. a third party siphoning off votes, and that's part of their strategy, by the way. That's uh, that's scary, um, but yeah, like I said, a uh, question for another day. Um, two more questions. One is, do you have any questions for me? 
I just, man, I could talk to you for hours about all of this stuff. And I just, I, 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 I guess what I want to ask is like, has this journey that you've been on with these discussions been everything that you thought it would be? One, two, would you do it again, launching the podcast? And three, what would you do differently? Three great questions. So one is, it hasn't been everything I thought it would be, but in, in a lot of ways, it's been more. Um, one of one of the ways that it's been more is I didn't think a guy like me who doesn't have any sort of profile in politics or academics or, uh, you know, I, I'm not on the scene. I'm not a, a, a national writer. I didn't think the likes of me could get to talk to the likes of you or Ron Steslow or Pete Weiner or John Rausch or Yasha Monk or any number of the wonder De- former Congressman Denver Rickleman. That was a ton of fun. We talked more about Denver's great, isn't he? Politics. Yeah, he's yeah, awesome. Denver's great. Um, so that, that's been or Dr. Russell Moore or my, one of my favorite uh, governors from Jersey, uh, Governor Christine Todd Whitman. Um, you know, it's just been amazing. And, and the friendships that, that we've developed, uh, that, that I've been able to develop has been more than I could ever have imagined. But it indicates something that there's a willingness for people at the highest levels of their vocations in academics, in re- religious leaders, um, in, in politics, that there is a hunger to have these conversations. And, you know, listen, I'm not fooling myself. I'm not the only one having these conversations. I think Braver Angels is doing great work along these lines. Um, my good friend Liz Joyner with Village Square is doing great work along these lines. So there's there's an appetite to have these conversations. Um, I forget. So have I was part of the question. Have I have we made any progress? Was that uh, no? I mean, you can go there if you want to. I, I mean, I, I think you've clearly made progress. I mean, look at what, look at the names that you're dropping. As I'm, mean, you're one of those names now. Like you're in part, you're part of that community, which is fantastic. But no, I was just like, would you do? Would you do anything? Di- one, would you do it again? And then two, w- what would you do differently? I would definitely do it again. I would do it all over again. Um, There's a lot of work goes into a- this. I don't think people realize just how time consuming it is. Yeah. I'm trying to think what I would do differently. I mean, what really comes to mind has more to do with the times that I really fucked up. Like, and it's not even on the show. It's, it's in like the practice of, um, of doing what I'm learning how to do through these conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, just recently, about two months ago, I had a conversation with a guy I consider a really good friend. And I just... I, I just wet the bed. I just absolutely – and I didn't wet the bed because I lost a debate. It wasn't – I'm not trying to win debates. I'm right. trying to connect with other human beings on a relational rather than a transactional level. And I just lost my shit on this dude. I absolutely mm. just – like I went – something got triggered in me and, and I did to my buddy what I think Pete Dominic did to me when he came on the show, uh, the, the last time he came on the show. Um, which was basically just steamroll the dude with all kinds of data points and all kinds of arguments to te- to explain to him why he's an asshole and why he's a racist and why he, you know, and it was just, it was terrible. I- I'm embarrassed, you know, and to the guy's credit, he reached out to me. We've had lunch. We've gone out to dinner. We, you know, he invited me over and, and you know, we just kicked back in his backyard several times since this, it, it was around July 4th. So I'd love to say that if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't have incidents like that, but that's what comes to mind. It's like I, I, I guess you have to really strike out. You have to really go into a um, uh, a slump, uh, you know, relative, symbolically speaking, 
um, to to understand how to where I need to improve, uh, what parts of myself I need to grow as a human being, um, in order to just have a little bit of an impact. Because I make no bones about the fact that I, I can't like snap my fingers and change the culture as a whole, but I do feel like I can make one degree of progress within myself and maybe have, therefore have one degree of influence with a friend, with somebody that I have a relationship with. And that's ultimately what I'm trying to do. And if I continue doing this, we've been doing it almost exactly three years. If I do it for another three years or 30 years, I hope that we continue, I continue to make progress as a human being that way and continue to have persuasion and influence on people that I have relationships with. So it's the best I can hope for. <laughs> you're doing it, man. I mean, you ask me, you know, what can people do? I mean, you're doing it, right? I mean, that's, that's, yeah. that's all you can do. And when, when you do that, that's how change happens. And I mean, it, it probably sounds a little bit trite, but it's, it's the journey of a thousand steps, you know? And yeah, sometimes you don't feel it, but after three years, man, you're, you're, you're like popping up on lists now of, you know, most oh, downloaded yeah. and you're in the conversation and getting great guests and people probably sending you more books than you want to hear about. And, that's, that's what it is. Is you're, you're you're a convener. You bring people together and you have conversations. And interviewing people is not easy. It is not easy. It's a lot of work, and it, it's it's a masterful practice and art form. And you're doing great. I hope you're enjoying it. I'm enjoying it so much. I can't even tell you. So it was really encouraging, actually, because I was just brushing up on some things. As you know, I I really do try to prepare and not uh, make make sure that this isn't a waste of your time. Uh, so I do try to put in my prep. One of the things that came up was um, uh, a, a uh, it was a picture of you from one of the times that we talked, the one with you and Chuck. <laughs> Chuck Rocha. Yeah. Yeah. So, that was a great conversation. We've got to do that again. Yeah, yeah. And then the one with you and Trippy was was really cool too. Uh, so Trippy, yeah. that was uh, that was Good a fun dude. one. So yeah. while we're thinking about it, uh, how can folks follow you, find more information about all the great work that you're doing? We mentioned the report that you just co-authored. Um, how, how can folks find all the great work that you're doing? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I can still be found on uh, the platform formerly known as Twitter. I guess is that how it works? Is X uh, at Madrid underscore Mike? Uh, you can also find me on Threads at M Y K E Madrid M Y K E M A D R I D, um, or just Google me. You'll you'll find me. I mean, I'm not that hard to yeah. find. Um, but but give me a follow. And um, shoot me your questions. Um, I try to be as interactive as I can be with, with, with fans and followers and supporters and detractors. It's gotten me into a lot of, lot of trouble, actually. People said don't interact <laughs> with people online. But, and not in a bad way. They're like people pretending to be you know, nice and have other objectives. And it's a tough place out there. But if you're not engaging with people, if you're not engaging with life, then what's the point, right? Like I don't want to be cloistered yeah. and bubbled. And I think that I've got this ability to kind of help people understand. And I, I want to bring that to people. So uh, go ahead and reach out to me. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're what my grandfather on. I love following you on threads. You haven't posted in a while, but I, I won't hold that against you. But you're what my grandfather would call a tzitzkamacha on threads. And it was he, he kind of made a mockery of the Yiddish language because he, he was born in Brooklyn. But in his what, what he meant by that was a tsurismacha, like a uh, troublemaker. You like to poke. and You get such great reactions. In Spanish, so. we call it travieso. Travieso, which sounds almost kind of familiar. But yeah, I guess we all in all of, all, all of our cultures is the thing about being a political consultant is you get paid to be a troublemaker, right? It's like the one thing I found a way to actually make a living at, you know, this quirky personality that I've got. So thanks. Appreciate that. It's awesome. Uh, and uh, yeah, this was great, man. I, I love visiting with you and I really appreciate you taking the time. We spent a little bit even extra time today. So I really appreciate that. Always love being with you, man. Appreciate the conversation. I appreciate you and what you're doing. 
Absolutely. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts, and tell a friend. Tell a friend about TPNR. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us www.politicsandreligion.us or you can find me online I'm not as active on uh, the artist formerly known as Prince or excuse me X <laughs> sorry um, but I am active on all the others at Corey S. Nathan that's Corey with an E and S is in Sam at Corey S. Nathan now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and some fun and have a great week